You know that sensation when something you love, you love really intensely and personally, blows up like when that one band you feel like you discovered has a big hit? Or that cult TV show that you love, it just goes mainstream? You feel a little betrayed. Well, imagine if the thing you love is co-opted by hatred, by racists with a violent agenda. What do you do? Do you abandon the thing and cede it to them? Or do you try to fight back? Well, that's what we're looking into today in the vexed history of Vikings and Old Norse religion. And it's a weird case study because these historical phenomena have been processed through the pop culture industry and have come out on the other side as actually quite inclusive and diverse. But racist groups like the Soldiers of Odin and the Wolves of Odin have made claims to racial purity in these cultural symbols. So what's a fan of the Marvel Comics universe to do? Well, today on History X, guest contributor Sabrina Tharani explores these and other questions. She digs into the true history of Old Norse culture and struggles with her own reactions. That's today on the show about what they didn't teach you in school. History X on the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. Stay right there. Here's Sabrina Therani, a guest contributor to History X and hopefully a frequent contributor to History X. She's a student in media studies at the University of Alberta. What you just heard were the chants of neo-Nazis at the Unite the Right rally that happened a couple of years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. With the U.S. election looming close and the reinvigorated presence of white supremacy in our own backyards, it got me thinking, how'd it get this way? And also about keychains, believe it or not. I love being able to dangle one too many novelty keychains off of my keys. So I'm standing there at a rotating display of comic book keychains, and my fingers skim across a hammer. It's Thor's, Mjolnir. You know the one, it comes flying into the palm of Thor's hand, can only be lifted by someone worthy. I picked it up, inspected it, and set it back down. Can you imagine why? Well, in recent years, that hammer, both a tool of a film character and a symbol of a mythological figure rooted in centuries of history, has turned into a symbol of hate, of radical white supremacy. Would you want that hanging off of your keys? In Canada, you may know of a particular group of white supremacists as the Sons of Odin, the Wolves of Odin, or more recently, Canadian Infidels. Whether or not you want to call them alt-right, they do embody hyper-conservative, quote-unquote, traditional Canadian ideals. I wanted to know, well, what's the deal with the Norse mythology thing? I had some ideas, but what I really wanted to do was go right to an expert. I chatted with Professor Natalie Van Dusen, a scholar of Scandinavian and Nordic myth and literature at the University of Alberta, and an outspoken advocate for the continued, accurate teaching of Norse mythology and Viking history. Like all of us, Dr. Van Dusen is working from home, so you may hear the pitter-patter of children in the background. So I was wondering if first you could tell me a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into uh, studying Scandinavian studies and Norse mythology. So I grew up um, attending a summer language camp where um, I actually learned Danish. It's part of my family background, not all of it. I'm a fairly, like, I'm a fairly mixed background in terms of... Um, 
where my ancestors come from, but I was always really interested in, in Danish and that part of my heritage. I read a book called Number the Stars by an author named Lois Lowry. It's about um, kind of a Danish um, resistance to Nazi occupation and helping, um, helping people across the border to um, smuggling people across to neutral Sweden. And so I became kind of obsessed with Denmark and learned Danish as a kid um, through these summer camps, decided to continue um, decided to continue studying at, um, at the university. And, um, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, kind of got a broad introduction to all parts of Scandinavian language, literature, culture, but I really was fascinated by the Middle Ages. Um, and Norse mythology, I've always found really fascinating. Um, what I ended up going into was more uh, kind of medieval Icelandic literature, generally speaking, and Norse mythology, of course, is a part of that. Our, our big question for the show essentially is in simple terms, like what is it about Vikings? Like why of all things are, are, are people wanting to appropriate Vikings? Do you have any idea about what makes Vikings so appealing for these kinds of groups? I mean, it's a long history. It dates back to um, European romanticism in the 19th century. And this, you know, after the period of enlightenment, when people are kind of going trying to define what it means to be a nation, what it means to be German, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, whatever, kind of looking to their roots. Um, this is around the time that folk tales were collected, that people, Grimm brothers went, Grimm's brothers went out, collected folk tales, trying to get to what it meant to be, you know, to be, to be German or whatever else. Um, and there was kind of this search for this uh, kind of German past, this pre-Christian German past. Um, and Norse mythology is the best preserved of all of the, um, by far, has the best preserved um, account of pre-Christian Germanic religion. And so it was looked to as sort of preserving, you know, the heart of what, you know, the origins of German, German society um, were. And that became a really important part of the Volkish movement or the Folkish movement, um, this idealization of the myth of an original nation that kind of started in the 19th century and went well, led into the Nazi era. Um, big part of this was the revival of pre-Christian Germanic paganism. And there was this kind of distortion of Norse mythology that they saw as lost, this kind of lost mythical Aryan legacy. I had read the, the folio piece that had featured you talking about your concerns and the need to start teaching a more accurate or maybe more just teaching Norse mythology more in order to kind of clarify what, uh, what assumptions we might have about Vikings and the lore surrounding them. Uh, when did you start to notice contemporary white supremacists were getting interested in Norse mythology? Well, that's something that's always kind of been on my radar. Recently, though, um, a group of instructors and professors of, um, of the area that I teach in, of Norse mythology, in particular in North America, where we've seen within basically the last four years, <laughs> an upsurge in a lot of these um, ideologies becoming a lot more public. Um, we organized a, um, a seminar where we sort of got together to, um, to, um, to deal with, you know, or try to talk about how we deal with, you know, the presence of this in the classroom and people that maybe have these ideologies and are coming to our classrooms in order to, um, 
in order to basically, you know, affirm a certain worldview that is very ex exclusive, ex exclusionary. Um, and that's, and how, how do we teach within this current climate in a way that doesn't do that? Um, yeah, it's something I, I mean, I've encountered it from only a couple times in my own classroom. Um, my colleagues in the States haven't been so fortunate. Um, and it's something that um, I think is, it's increasingly a concern for us, but we, we met in order to have um, to kind of develop guidelines and share curriculum about, you know, how we, how we teach in a way that kind of combats this misconception about like this racially pure time. And that's not to say that like medieval Scandinavia was, you know, this extremely multicultural place, but it's also not what it's being portrayed as within some of these um, extremist groups. Um, what particular figures do you see these groups being drawn to? They tend to be really uh, kind of Odin focused in um, the wolves of uh, the wolves of Vinland, also true, um, and very focused on that part. Um, but they, um, yeah, they've there. There's a long list of ones that have been designated as as hate groups. But it's also important, I think, to note that there are a lot of very inclusive neo-pagan groups. And I know that this is a this is a sore spot. And I think um, for people that do have, um, you know, that do practice neo-paganism, um, as that they're not. There are ones that are very inclusive, and um, that there are many that don't see it as this ethnic religion that you can only participate in if, if you're of Germanic descent. Um, and those are really important also for me to highlight um, and talk to because they're in their own way doing really important work to to combat this really dangerous ideology. How did you notice students start to get into it? Like what, what kind of assumptions did they have when they came to your classes or came to any events that you were taking part in? And maybe how, how did you handle those assumptions then? The one time I can, that I can really think about was um, within, you know, a couple of discussions that came up, um, just sort of a, just, they weren't, it wasn't anything that was super overt, um, but it was something that could very easily be, um, be dealt with in the classroom. And so this is not sort of the, the way that, not the direction I'm, that I'm going in terms of how I'm teaching this. I'm not interested in, um, you know, in affirming an ideology that looks at this mythology as, you know, representative of, you know, this, this pure race. Um, yeah, it was with also with a paper that I've dealt with it before. Um, certainly not as overt as some of my colleagues elsewhere, though. For me, I, I kind of look to media like the show Vikings. I haven't seen it before, but I've seen enough ads to know I don't know if I want to watch it as a woman of color. Um, do you think that there is um, an amount of, of like that kind of media influencing why students are interested in taking um, Scandinavian studies or Norse mythology, and does that also influence how they view those cultures? Um, I think that popular culture plays a big role in why people are interested in studying these topics. I think interestingly what, um, I, so I don't watch the Vikings either, and it has nothing to do with me being like a history snob or anything like that. It's just, I finally figured out that I can't watch it because I spend my days immersed in this stuff, in this work, so I need an escape that is not 
so much like my work. But what's interesting about a lot of pop culture is that they've kind of reclaimed the past and rethought it in a really interesting way by including actors of color. So Idris, El Idris Elba, for example, playing Heimdall, and um, Ricky Whittle in uh, American Gods, who um, plays, they haven't gotten to the part yet in the, in the, in the TV series, but in the book, it's, he's a pretty critical character in, um, in Norse mythology. And he's, um, and he's black. And so it's, it's been really important to, um, you know, see these kind of diverse casting um, within um, other various reimaginings of, of the Viking Age, which I think has been really, really exciting. Valkyrie in the Avengers, for example, um, like, it's been really cool to see that as like a really unique way in which people have reclaimed that Viking past and reimagined it. That was Dr. Natalie Van Dusen talking about her research on the misappropriation of Norse mythology. You're listening to History X, where we unlearn what we were taught and learn what we weren't taught. It's a show about buried histories, enigmas, and contradictions. We try to get as close to the truth as we can. I'm Russell Cobb, and I'm here today with Sabrina Therani. What do you, what did you take away? What was your main takeaway from Natalie's, from your interview with Natalie? So in talking to Natalie, uh, she was, she mentioned how this is just a small subset of people that just happen to be the loudest. Um, there are many groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center has deemed as hate groups that use Norse mythology. It's not just the ones that we see in Alberta, um, but she was very keen to point out that there's a huge subset of um, folks that practice neo-pagan um, religions and traditions that are actually doing a lot of positive legwork when it comes to dividing um, themselves from these hate groups. You just don't hear about it as much. I had no idea that they were doing so much work, but she made a point of, of making sure that uh, her students and, and me in talking to her knew that and understood that. So that was something new that I hadn't actually thought about at all. I got curious because when we first started talking about this, you mentioned that you were a fan of Mar the Marvel Comics universe, mm. correct? Mm -hmm. I, I feel yep. I, I got I had to plead ignorance. But on that note, I went on Reddit and uh, I, on, on one channel, I discovered all these diatribes about the original casting of Idris Elba as Heimdall. Did I say that correctly? Heimdall. Yes. And all these responses. And it looked like it had just blown up. And I'll confess, I didn't read the whole thing. But a lot of people seem to be asking, how can you have a black character cast as a Norse god? And I kind of paused and went, I don't know. What, what, what was your response? What was your response to that? My response was maybe a little harsh at first. Uh, these aren't real people. So I generally like to think that we can have creative freedom with that. And it was actually something that Natalie had mentioned to me as well. Um, we had talked about a little bit of the you know, reappropriation or reclamation of these stories by people of color because uh, Idris Elba isn't the only character of color that's in that series. Um, in the most recent film, uh, Ragnarok, we have uh, Tessa Thompson playing Valkyrie. 
So we've got another black character mm -hmm. in the franchise. You have the film directed by an indigenous director from New Zealand. The film has kind of grown from, grown out of this kind of white narrative into something that more accurately reflects its audience, which is far more diverse than just European white folks. So do you think it's making progress like with the latest film, the Thor Ragnarok, is that, was there less fuss about, about that than there was 10 years ago when Idris Elba was originally cast as Heimdall? No, but then there's also another layer that a lot of these white supremacist groups also have, which is added misogyny on top of the racism. So there is a lot of attention directed to Tessa Thompson's casting, but not only is she, she's black, but she's also a black woman. Mm. There's layers of, uh, of discourse then that incorporate these kinds of misogynistic ideas and, you know, kind of pair them up oh, with see. the racist ideas. And it's not, it's not new in the Marvel Cinematic Universe's fandom. Um, they recently had Zendaya play Mary Jane Watson or an iteration of Mary Jane Watson from the Spider-Man uh, comics. And people were up in arms about casting someone that is Black as the love interest for Peter Parker. Even though, once again, she's a fictional character and generally the way that we like to deal with art is or the way I like to deal with art is allow it to be manipulated and, and reimagined. I think that's the beauty of art. I think it's the beauty of stories like these comics. Okay, so I'm I'm curious, like what are we're supposed to do when maybe someone out of uh, someone on Reddit out of ignorance says something like, "Well, I don't understand how you could cast." Idris Elba as Heimdall because he's Norse and they're from Scandinavia and maybe they're maybe they're a little ignorant and you can explain it to them. That's fine. But what what do we do when it's when the discourse gets ramped up into outright hatred? Like what how to how to react to that? I mean, first of all, like how do you react to it or or have you had to confront it? Maybe you haven't. I've had to confront it um, many times and maybe it hadn't taken the same form as it does now or the form that I was, you know, examining, which are these organized hate groups. But growing up in Alberta as a woman of color, as a person of color, it, you can't avoid it. Um, and when it comes to addressing it, I almost feel like there is a bit of a burden on people of color to be understanding of someone's radical racist thoughts. Initially, the approach that I had taken to this, um, to the story and in doing the research was that, okay, well, I need to understand the other side mm -hmm. so that I can, you know, have an accurate, um, like representation of, of what's actually going on. I don't want to misrepresent anyone. The more research I did, the harder it got for me to stomach some of the things that were happening. And then I kind of, you know, I paused and wondered, like, why, why am I doing the hard work? Mm -hmm. Why am I the one that has to listen to someone's um, racist tirades on YouTube mm -hmm. or read someone's angry comments about immigration on Facebook when that's not reciprocated? Mm -hmm. So I try my best to engage less and less now that I've gotten older. I think when I was younger and more fiery, I think I would have 
probably gotten engaged in, you know, angrily commenting back. I just know that that causes harm to no one but me. Uh, it doesn't change any minds. And really the only person that has to deal with the repercussions of reading hate comments about who you are is, is, is me. Mm. So I had actually really no idea on how we're supposed to appropriately kind of engage with racism and hate when when you see it online. Interesting. That's that's, that's yeah. so you felt it takes a toll on you. Yeah, yeah. Well, to conclude, maybe we should uh, give our listeners some best practices on how to deal with hate speech online, on YouTube, on Reddit, etc. What What should we do? That's a great question. For that, I talked to Irfan Chaudhry, Director of the Office of Human Rights, Diversity, and Equity at McEwen University, as well as a notable hate crime researcher. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your work and research? So yeah, so I've done a lot of work in the area uh, of like hate crime and violent extremism, uh, but more so around how these narratives occur in the online space. And the real focus there is more so on the subtle and covert ways that, you know, hatred, uh, discrimination, specifically uh, race-based discrimination is able to still kind of manifest itself online. And because it's not technically, you know, violating any, you know, freedom of speech, let's say legislation or hate crime legislation, and it's not violating any of the terms of service for like your Facebooks, your YouTubes, your Twitter, your Instagram, and so on and so forth, that's where you're still able to kind of see these types of narrative uh, happen quite a bit. Uh, unchallenged because technically they're not violating anything. So that's kind of where my interest uh, lies. Uh, And just because of the topical nature of a lot of this, um, the, you know, whether they're they're soldiers of Odin one week and then sons of Odin the next week, and then the, what is it, Canadian infidels the following week after. um, These, these are the groups and and similar groups that, you, you know, whether they know they're doing it or not, are able to kind of still propagate a message uh, around anti-immigration, anti-Islam, um, and get unchallenged because essentially the system's set up for that to occur. And so that's kind of where my, my research interests are in terms of how that those hateful narratives are able to still kind of be propagated online with little content contestation from the official channels, I would say, uh, because technically there's no violation of any service. So that in a nutshell is kind of what's what we're, we're, we're looking at. What can we do as just an average citizen when we see white supremacy online? Are we, su- are we supposed to report it? Are we supposed to engage with it? What are the most tangible kind of like tools that you can equip us with? I think first and foremost is acknowledging that, you know, something in a hateful, you know, space has occurred. Um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of interesting conversations now about, you know, anti-maskers and then, you know, there's that public uh, one that came through with a, a man going into a Northside liquor store and essentially verbally berating someone who uh, wore the turban and was visually representing a Sikh and, you know, was being blamed for, I don't know, all the ills of the world and so on and so forth. But you observed in the uh, CCTV footage, there's two people there. They didn't intervene directly, but they were getting everything on camera, right? And so my, my assumption and my hope is they were utilizing that as a, a way to document what was happening 
so that they could inform to the police, for example, or, you know, go up to this person after and say, Hey, we got everything. We got your back. We got everything on camera. So, you know, whatever you need, we can support you. And I think that's the first and foremost thing is finding ways to support people who are experiencing that type of overt discrimination, uh, whether it, it's in the moment, whether it's after the fact, whether it's, you know, even a couple of days after, that's okay, right? As long as you act, I think are the biggest things, right? Because uh, I think often we feel we're compelled to intervene right at that moment. And all of us might not be comfortable doing that for various reasons, right? I always use the example, you know, if I'm in a public space by myself and I were to witness something like that, uh, I would be more willing to intervene, again, based on subject matter, familiarity, uh, kind of who I am as a person. But I know the second I have one of my young kids with me, I'm not intervening. You know what I mean? So there's all these dynamics, but I don't have to intervene in that moment. I can intervene after the fact, right? So if it's in a public space like that, I'm making sure the store uh, management's aware that, hey, at this day, at this time I was in your store, this happened. I'd like you to make sure that it gets addressed uh, because I think those are things people are looking for as well, right? So you can either, you know, approach in a direct or indirect way, but I think the biggest thing is, is, is doing something and you find that strength in numbers as well, right? So if it's, you know, you're by yourself, but you're also with someone who you don't know, but they, you both seem to be, you know, vibing on the sense that this isn't cool, what you're observing, what you're seeing, then you can kind of support each other to say, Hey, this is not appropriate. What's happening. We should say something or do something. It's almost a strength in numbers. So that's when you see the overt stuff. It's the covert subtle things though, that are more challenging, right? That we have to be mindful of how do we intervene? How do we interact? You know, if you go to the uh, online space, for example, you know, again, because of the way these terms of services are for the different social media platforms, unless it's overt, negative, hateful speech targeting specific groups and identifiable groups, uh, then like your Facebooks might intervene if you report it through their reporting mechanisms. Otherwise, they won't, right? They'll look into it and say, yeah, we looked at this, but unfortunately it doesn't violate the terms of service. And that's where a lot of these white nationalist groups have been able to kind of, you know, have their private closed groups remain online on Facebook is because they're not violating any of those terms of service. I think Facebook and other platforms have, you know, re-looked at what that looks like. But then in the grand scheme of things, because they have like a, a whole team of contractors that are there trying to address content that gets flagged, unfortunately, the things around hateful discourse gets pushed to the bottom of the, the pile because there's other aspects around, you know, active, you know, homicides happening or child abduction or sexual exploitation or other things, right? And so I think this is why you've seen these things allowed to kind of, you know, propagate and, and occur. But I think still reporting it on the Facebook platforms or Instagram or whatever it is. I don't use TikToks. So I don't even know if there's a reporting platform there. Uh, but just being mindful of, you know, if it doesn't violate a terms of service, it's still important for the, the service to know that it's happening because maybe they can relook at their terms of service and be a little bit more aggressive. So I think those are things. So if I were to boil it into a nutshell, it's just acknowledging that something is occurring that, you know, is maybe discriminatory in nature, whether overt and co or covert, uh, and then addressing it either directly or indirectly. Right. So again, in the ways we just talked about. You're listening to history X the show about what they didn't teach you at school from the mighty, mighty CJSR FM in Edmonton, Alberta, Treaty 6 territory. This is your host, Russell Cobb, with Sabrina Therani. Sabrina has been researching white supremacy and pop culture and the true history or histories that were hidden uh, underneath the veneer of Norse mythology and Vikings. Sabrina, I know you were interested in 
pop culture and the Marvel universe. And some of that has some Norse mythology in it before we started doing this show. And I just wanted to ask you before we leave, like how discovering these pernicious and hateful ideas sometimes has changed the way you think about pop culture, if at all. Initially in going to this, uh, going into it, I thought that I was going to be validated in my thoughts that shows like Vikings, angry fans on the internet, that's just proliferating an idea of what white supremacy can latch onto. In talking to both Natalie and Irfan, I think I had learned that it's actually a little bit more positive than I wanted to give it credit for. What um, do you mean? Pop, Pops, pop culture pos- is evolving. It's evolving in a way that I guess I hadn't shifted my gaze toward. Um, movies like Thor Ragnarok are taking a step in the right direction by doing this, by engaging in this act of reclamation of a narrative, reclamation of a story. Through speaking with Natalie, I've learned that this wasn't a homogenous society. It never was. So to pretend it was, it's doing a disservice to the history. It's doing a disservice to the thousands of scholars around the world who go out of their way to ensure that we're teaching North mythology the correct way, that we're reflecting societies in Scandinavia the right way. My mind was changed in in a positive way. I think I've filled with a little bit more hope and optimism about where fan culture is going. That is an amazing way to end the show. <laughs> I feel like we're surrounded with so much so much negativity right now. Let's end on that note of, of optimism about pop culture, even fan culture. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to History X on CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. I'm your host, Russell Cobb, and today's show was co-written and co-produced with Sabrina Tharani. Special thanks this week to Natalie Van Dusen and Ifrin Chowdhury. You can follow us on History X Pod on Instagram or on History X on Facebook. See you next time. <laughs>